Namo tassa bhagavato rahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato rahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato rahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang dhammang sanggang namasami Everybody's lives are full of content, aren't they? We're all uh, feelings, emotions, thoughts, visions, views, sensations, scenarios, crises, life stories, issues, things we need to do, things we're about to do. It's all you know, a huge amount of content going on and it moves and rolls along and uh, it's a continually rolling wheel that never really stops never actually finds a completion in it mm. so a kind of, this is the the dukkha of it is the unsatisfied the incomplete quality of the content of our lives yeah. So, of course, many people are just looking for the right kind of content. Mm. And feeling or scenario, situation, place, um, yeah, ideas, things of this nature. You would dedicate themselves to a to a, an idea or a view. As this, um, got his great one of his great mathematicians of the century, Hungarian, I believe he was, and he spent all his life to completely devote himself to mathematics. So his his whole idea of the human human system was just a way of using amphetamine and coffee. To produce mathematical theories, you know, which he, he produced several of them, and uh, um, Erdos, I think his name was, and he just liked when he produced one theory, he thought that's quite nice. Then he produced another one, even more beautifully, like beautiful theories. So his whole life was dedicated to this. He just had a couple of suitcases, and he'd go travelling around and visiting his friends with just two suitcases worth of belongings. He lived like a recluse in a way. And he just stayed with people so they got utterly fed up with this guy because he was completely almost autistic. Because <laughs> his whole focus was on mathematical theories, <laughs> which he produced these stunningly beautiful theories. But um, his whole life was that, you know, complete dedication to that. So, in terms of people, other things, he apparently completely disinterested in sexuality, relationships, anything like that, just completely devoted to math. And um, that was his life, was like that, you know, producing one of these beautiful theories. And, you know, people kind of, a sense of being, the human ability to absorb into, into content and um, creation and uh, topics and things that we get uh, fascinated by. Mm. 
Sometimes it's like you know, looking for something to get really absorbed into, fascinated by, or the perfect, or the right, or the something of this nature. Uh, the Buddha Dharma is mostly about, not exactly about content, so much as about handling content. Mm. So really, most of the Buddha's teaching is kind of, there's certainly there's an amount of content like happiness, well-being, um, feeling good is important, but quite a simple thing. Right? Feeling, feeling good, feeling well, feeling at ease. Uh, that's the basic, you know, it's not a very complex thing. Um, the most important things, if you like, are the, the, the reflections around how that's arrived at. Because the real aim is to actually empty out content. So there's been no particular preoccupation at all. The mind is freed. And it's just what is left is a, a kind of refining, ever-refining sense of well-being, which comes from um, the absence of, of obsessive content, of obsessive views, thoughts, biases, reactions, um, these stuff that suddenly comes rushing up and propels us into actions of some kind, the urgencies, the demands, the, the fire, the uh, passions, the, the um, reactions that we can get through, you know, the complete absence of this. So the general aim of it is quite just a kind of fairly open, moderated state of, of non-attachment. Mm where we're not particularly absorbed into any particular thing at all, because most of our energy is about just how to moderate the content that's already happening. You know, just the, the physical feelings, visual content, other people, um, effects on our lives, things of this nature. So it's, um, and the idea is not to really have a lot going on, because <laughs> just being around is enough. It sometimes sounds kind of uh, a bit weak or ineffectual, because but the point isn't really the content; it's how you handle. And the, and the less there is, actually, the more subtle and refined and skillful the handling is. It's like if you're a, if you're juggling and you've got to juggle fifty-eight plates, then it's going to be pretty, um, you know. But if you've only got two, you can actually moderate how much you're you're handling, how fast you go. Yeah. So this is like a way in which we try to sort of quieten down or clear out the what what we get con- full of. You know, there's a whole inclination towards that abandoning, releasing, dispassion, letting go, ceasing, yeah. which definitely goes very much against the instincts. You know. There's a kind of fundamental inclination behind those instincts, which is to get hold of, to have, to be filled with something. It's almost like a, it's not it's certainly not an ideology, it's a much more basic view or inclination, the mind, the grasping to have something to get into, to be born into, to belong to, to have, to become, to have going, you know. So if you haven't got enough going, then we have a hobby. <laughs> if not, life isn't enough already, then you create something so that one doesn't have that funny, empty feeling. Mm. 
So most of it really in Buddhism is about this way we, if you like, the handling of the, of, of what's going on, and um, really the, the and reflect and the way we handle it is you reflect on it. You kind of, so what we might say the the first factor of the path is right view, which is that you know, when you when you're with something, does it bring around well your well-being or not? You know? And well-being, much more than just an immediate flash-in-the-pan rush of sensation or emotion, but just the long-term health, um, clarity, stability, you know, something that you really want to be with. You know. so, so this is the principle of karma. And um, also right view very much recognizes we're in a mutual, mutuality cosmos, that is, we're affected by and affect everything else, or other things, and of course most of our other things are people. You know? So in this sense of, so that the, if you like, the basic view is one does no harm to oneself or to others, one seeks one's own welfare and that of others. Because the basic placing that we're in is we're all, human beings are all, Affecting, affected by each other. We we are born from each other. We're born in some. We're created in somebody else's body. We have parents. We have kins. We have we have kinship. We have fellows. We have colleagues. We have um, all this going on. The kind of basic experience as human beings. And so we're in that. We depend upon food, water, things around us to live on. So this is kind of very obvious. But it may be obvious, but you do realize how human beings haven't really got this one straight, really, fully. That fundamental acknowledgement doesn't run, you know, how we can be, uh, people, people are going to be terribly abusive to their children, torture them, beat them up. Um, people are going to have terrible relationships with their family members or try and cut them off, or kick them out, or abandon them. We have a terrible relationship with the planet, you know, where we're actually sort of in danger of killing the whole thing that keeps us alive. So, so reducing its ability to sustain itself, it becomes, uh, we have less and less a possibility of nourishing, living more, living comfortably. And this is really where we were at. <laughs> so this very mutuality, although it, it may seem kind of obvious, it, it, you know, there's a whole. You see how how this quality of ignorance obscures what is staring us in the face, and it obscures it because it says it doesn't really matter about the other. What's most important is me, me, mine. And so, any view that does that is essentially is a wrong view. It's towards my welfare, your welfare, recognizing they have to be together. And it can't really be for your welfare without my welfare because I can't really know what welfare is unless I'm feeling it. You know, I may have an idea, this will be good for you. (laughs) You know, like this kind of missionary stuff, this will be good for your welfare. Uh, But recognizing, well, what's happening in my own mind is this attitude good for my welfare? 
You know, if I am just imposing a set of, of, of ideas and opinions upon you, is that really, you know, is that coming from a beautiful, calm, clear space in myself? Isn't it coming from some kind of need to control you or make you into something or change you? And what's that, you know? Is that attitude for my welfare or your welfare? No, neither. So as you start to check this out, you know, you realize that where both of those are, are covered, my welfare, your welfare, mindfulness is very balanced. And the sense of boundaries is quite soft. You know, we actually feel more at home because we're not pushing or pressurizing or sucking or, you know, on other people, other creatures. Nor are we um, ignoring our own, our own welfare, some view of what's, you know, for others, which is also a kind of a, a habit or a trap we can get into this, where you're not, you don't really know what welfare is because you're not feeling it. So it's very immediate. It's not for my, it's this, you really need to get that sense of right now, this is, fee- I can trust this. I know it's coming from my good place. You know? So it's a very immediate kind of cause and effect thing. You look, you experience the causes of your actions, for your welfare, for other people's welfare, for the both, at least to not be harming. And you can, you get this sense of, of, of reflecting on that causal process. So there's a kind of a, a right view as a certain system to it. Mm. So, so we can, sometimes action is, is suitable, sometimes no act, better to not act. Sometimes it's better to say something, sometimes it's better not to say something. Sometimes it's better to continue something, sometimes it's better to wait for something. And you're going to get this sense of really moderating. Um, and that's the basis of right effort. Yeah. So right view always precedes right effort because um, without that right effort hasn't got what makes it right. So that with the right view, you're recognizing there are certain causes happening, certain causative processes happening, and it should be towards one's welfare, towards one's calm, towards one's sense of stability and happiness and wholeness, and towards that of others. So any effort that isn't following that is an obsession of some kind. Or uh, an abandonment, like a a disconnection of some kind. Hmm. Because, of course, human beings can make colossal efforts. You know, know, people do amazing things. They're trying to fly across the English Channel and, you know, swim across it. Uh, People are not lacking in efforts. The Buddha himself, on his quest, made colossal, you know, one might even say superhuman efforts but it wasn't based upon any tangible sense of welfare. You know, it was based upon a view. Mm. Annihilationist view. Get out of here. Get out of this cosmos. Get out of being in some sort of mutuality experience. Get out of it. Find a way to make it all stop, make the body stop. Not be feeling or responsive to a body. Not be feeling or responsive to a thought not be feeling or responsive to an emotion. Get it out of here, get out of here. 
And so that kind of annihilationist view, which is can be a, a, a something that is there for people, uh, you know, when they take up spiritual practices. Uh, you recognizing in the here and now is this feeling good for me? Does it have good effects on you? Does it cause harm to you? Does it cause harm to my body? You know, there's always that overview. And of course the um you know the most some of the most most uh wonderful and stunning realization of the Buddha after all his years of effort was of tireless, unremitting effort till his head nearly burst was well, just the sense of being steady and here and relaxed bringing to mind qualities that bring around that sense of at ease. That's right effort. Mm. Abandoning unskillful thoughts, abandoning unskillful views, bringing up the sense of stability, trust, at homeness, restedness. Now that's right effort. Mm. It's not Herculean. You know, it sounds kind of bit weak after he practically stopped eating and stopped breathing. You know, that sounds really impressive, doesn't it? And people are still doing this. You know, you go to India today and they're still doing this kind of stuff. People are still, you know, mortifying their flesh and rolling in dirt and walking around naked and, you know, stuff like that. And it's very impressive. But does it... <laughs> Don't necessarily do any good. <laughs> it's non-reflective. One doesn't actually have this sense of cause and effect. What's the result of this? Uh, what good does it do anyone? What good does it do you? What good does it do your own body? Uh, so this sense of mutuality isn't just other people. It's also a relationship with one's physical form. You know, with your your emotional body, your mental body, how you handle it, how much effort to make to keep that sense of wholeness. Because right effort has to be moderated by right view. Because these things themselves can become content as well as structure, can't they? You know, effort becomes something, one becomes mesmerized by effort or denies it altogether, you know, so you kind of, but there's a certain sense of applying, reflecting, uh, being present with what's going on. That's the kind of effort, that sense of tuning in is, 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 this, is the effort the effort to stay focused, to stay where we are. It doesn't seem like much until you recognize a lot of the time you're not. You know, a lot of the time one is moving out of relationship, moving out of the present moment, moving out of being conscious of what one's saying and the effects of it, moving out of the awareness of what your thoughts are doing and how they're stirring one up, they're stirring you up moving out of connection to what the particular views or attitudes one is continually you know, dwelling in or fostering. Uh, 
and what that feels like and what its effects are. So we, sometimes right effort seems like, well, it doesn't sound very much, does it? Just being present. But you try doing it. And really, so that you, you're constantly assi- tuning into the ethical, moral, and uh, feeling effects of what one's doing through one's speech, one's thoughts, and one's attitudes. Certainly, you know, if, if my experience is, you know, in, in any particular day, even in a place of this nature, you know, you hear views that sound very spiky, you know, very d- dismissive, uh, not continually sustained, particular pieces, just of old habit come out. You know, that people are not really aware of. You know, same myself. Suddenly you hear myself say something, wow, where did that come from? <laughs> you know, it's got a bit of bitterness in it or something. <laughs> you know, or pre- prejudice, prejudging people or caricaturing people. It, you know, goodness. what You know, you can feel it. It's, and these are the bits one really wants to notice, actually. And so that the more you start to to kind of um, reduce the content of one's activities and what one's obsessed with, then the real true content of your of what your life is about starts to come to the surface, which is all your habits. You know, you want to have it kind of empty enough so you can really witness what you, what your mind is doing in ordinary speech, ordinary thought, ordinary attitudes, ordinary assumptions mm-hmm. assumption one should be busy working all the time producing something creating something making something happen the attitude is that somehow one is unworthy or not, not welcome or undeserving you know so old pieces of old we call it old karma or inheritance views and attitudes to about oneself yeah, what one should be, views and attitudes about other people, biases, racial biases, gender biases. You know, suddenly you find yourself saying something about, you know, you realize your attitude towards, and you don't know it's there until you start to consider, well, you know, when you're practicing something like Brahma Vihara, Metta Bhavana, you think, oh, I don't seem to have any ill will. Then consider, you know, people. Is anybody you regard as having less intelligence than yourself? Yeah. Or anybody you regard as being um, less essential than yourself? Less necessary yourself? People you wouldn't want to dine with or talk with or hang out with? You think, oh no, that's no real will there, it's just that he's, he's a bit thick. <laughs> no real will. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, now we all walk towards her. She just talks too much. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Isn't it? You know how fact suddenly it becomes fact, doesn't it? There's nothing happening here. It's just that's a, that's a fact. Yeah. And how much is too much? And how much is not enough? And how who is the right person? Yeah. And who is the really worthy, important one? And what you know? Suddenly you realise there's whole kind of tonalities of things that I'm biased about, prejudiced about, opinionated about, that are kind of fairly weak until I have to be with that, you know, that 
person I don't think much of. God, he really drives me nuts. He really is a pain. Suddenly the ill will becomes much much more apparent. So you want to kind of keep surveying one's own landscape in terms of your own attitudes with your own body, your own mind. You think you're a failure, useless, or brilliant, whatever it is. You know, most important or least important. What's happening here? What's happening here? So you you kind of keep reflecting on it. And uh, so it becomes something where nothing is actually certain. You know, you want the content to be more don't know, uncertain, could be, it depends, you know. It depends. Eventually you can say, well, I don't like other people's defilements. (laughs) I don't like pain, you know, it's not really people. Or, or, you know, it's just, uh, I don't like it when people are angry at me or unpleasant to me. So it's not really people, is it? You begin to look at particular pieces of behavior. And it gets much more useful that way. Seeing where one is reactive. Where one closes down, where one actually jumps out of presence. Behind some attitude, some view, some judgment. And how we can sanctify those things. The Buddha, when we look at the mutuality experience, it's really, you know, as I think the old. You know, the old joke, if you like, is that you can wish loving kindness and complete awakening to all sentient beings, apart from the people you're living with, (laughs) 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 who get on your nerves and (laughs) should know better, and why don't they pull their socks up? Because it's just the you know this is a lovely idea, isn't it? Beautiful. I really like that kind of idea. And if I think on that, you know, it feels very nice. But actually, that isn't a problem. The problem isn't all sentient beings. It's just the guy who lives in the next room who snores too loud or <laughs> talks too much or whatever. <laughs> so, when it to be pragmatic, when it really counts, is is just the kind of immediate here and now effective circle, the circle of beings that really affect you. And that's where you want to practice my well-being, your well-being, the well-being of both of us. I'm not just continually kind of giving way to you to make placating. Um, And neither am I overbearing. But I'm starting to see where some of these, you know, resistances, our struggles are. And being able to, you know, it's not a person, it's particular pieces of behavior or um, my views or what happens when, at this meeting place. You're looking at it partic- very specifically. And that's being present, isn't it? That's honest. Mm. 
and it's being so uh, to, to my mind it's certainly when one can certainly begin to name something it's actually the specific point that almost immediately it's not a problem it's just something to to deal with it's not a kind of a, something I react to anymore say ah oh, this is the problem you know I used to find people coming standing too close to me I think you know and I wouldn't realize I was getting irritated just because somebody's standing a certain distance and I'd feel they were being bossy or uh, uh, demanding or, you know, I just wanted to get away from them. Until I actually recognized, yeah, if this person stood a foot back, it'd be very different. You know, I guess we have different space boundaries, don't we? Once I could know it as that, then it didn't matter. As soon as I knew it was just that particular thing, that's that. Then, in a way, I could get above it. I could sort of see it for what it was. Once it's made conscious, then the system can kind of adjust. Oh, it's that. So I'll take that into account. When this person stands, you know, one foot, away, two foot away from me, rather than three foot away from it, I just say, "Oh, that's the way. That's the way he stands. That's what he feels. That's okay with me. I can adjust to that." So it's how you make these things conscious, and you can't be conscious of generalities, caricatures, stereotypes, prejudices, because they're, they're not actual here and now specific realities. Yeah. Yeah. You always have to be conscious of specific here and now experiences. Once you, that's right effort, to be present with one's the difficulty, you really, really present so you know it's this. You know. Don't like people with you know, people who talk close to me who've got halitosis, you know, bad breath. Mm-hmm. It's just that. Okay. Once it's just it's not because he's a bad person or inconsiderate or whatever, it's just don't like that. And then the mind oh, okay, I'll take that into account. And it's like as soon as it's named you don't have this unconscious quality to it. And some of these things are, the unconscious qualities are always the qualities where these, where you, what are called anutse, are latent tendencies or unrevealed tendencies, ill will, um, passion, craving, lust, restlessness, views, these tendencies, these are latent tendencies. Um, and as long as they remain unrevealed, they, they keep propelling us without really knowing why. Why do I react? Why do I buttons get pushed by this? Why do I... And sometimes the buttons are pushed so quickly, I don't think anything's happened to me, I think it's all you. She did that, he did that. People make me feel this way. How do people make me feel anything? No. It's surely it's one's own reactions and assumptions that govern one's feelings, not anybody else. Yeah. So once we, re- when we really disconnect, then it's always um, you lose contact with your own specific part in any problem, and that's the only bit that you can most. That's the bit you can have most say over, isn't it? Like. Um, Somebody was reading out this morning, you know, how you, know, you can't, you, um, you can't cover the whole world with leather, but if you put a piece of leather on the sole of your foot, 
you've got a you've got a safe um, boundary. Similarly, you can't sort out everybody else, get rid of all their so-called irritating people. But if you clear out irritation and rage from your own mind, there aren't irritating people. There are just people with various kinds of suffering and unconsciousness and ignorance. And one's mind then becomes compassionate. So anything that limits our ability to be compassionate, mutual, responsive, present, in you know, contact is whatever view supports it, that is a hindrance. Because it limits our ability to be compassionate, to be open, to be mutual, you know, to be in the here and now cosmos of interdependence. So anything that does that, you know, is a form of hindrance and these uh, of, of ignorance. And um, the unconscious quality of it can sanctify it. That is, some things are made unconscious by being unexplored. Now, everybody thinks this. You know, these generalized, everybody thinks this, or people are like that. You get these generalized views. Or sometimes we get sanctification, this is right. This is a very favored modality of unconsciousness. <laughs> this is right, you know. Yeah. I was looking at a uh, an, uh, magazine which had a whole section of things on religion the, called the wars of religion this magazine was, had a section on the wars of religion everybody's claiming my religion is peaceful I belong to peaceful religion yeah. so they exemplified these two people living in the West Bank you know, a Palestinian and an Israeli living in the West Bank. So both of them peaceful religion. <laughs> you know. But both of them honestly believe that God had granted them this piece of land. So it's mine by right, by by the God has bestowed land upon, you know, my people or you know, not your people. So, you know, it's a sanctification of of, uh, of right, isn't it? God is one of the great unconscious uh, <laughs> unconscious pieces that people carry. Yeah. Uh, they don't haven't seen God, they don't know that they can, they've heard it, and it acts as that which sanctifies lynching. Yeah. Uh, you know that famous song of Bob Dylan's with God on our side? Every war is fought with God on our side. And he ends up saying, well, you know, if God's actually on our side, maybe he'll stop us fighting each other. Rather than sanctify another another form of conflict and war behind the idea of this is right. And we don't have to look at global wars. You can look at um, just interpersonal conflicts over what's right. Yeah. One of the uh, kind of classic textbook cases in 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 um, time of the Buddha was that people were having a uh, got into enormous amount. Bhikkhu was going to enormous amount of conflict over some little point of of, of vinya of, of training rule. It was a, it was a pretty minute point. It was about whether you should empty water out of a basin. 
after you left the toilet. You know, hardly the kind of thing that you'd imagine people would get come to blows about. <laughs> and yet somebody said you should, and somebody said you shouldn't, and so forth. So this whole thing, you're, you're an idiot, you know, your teacher doesn't know what he's talking about, you don't really understand the training rules, you, know, you call my teacher, and so, so it's built up this colossal schism, or near a schism in the Sangha, until the Buddha came along and said, look, look, please stop this, please stop this. You know, I'm the Buddha teacher. I say, please stop this. This is a. If you keep conflicting, you won't be able to sit down and have gruel together. You won't be able to go on arms round together. You won't be able to have these lovely convivial things together. You know, the, the whole point of our life is to enjoy each other's company, to find noble friendship. And they said, oh, don't worry about this, Buddha. We'll sort this out. <laughs> so even even the Buddha. You know, even their own teacher, the enlightened Buddha, they dismissed because he wasn't right enough. <laughs> they wanted to be right instead. <laughs> you know, it's amazing, isn't it? When you think like the person is actually their guide who's laying down the training rules, they can dismiss him because they want to follow the training rules more perfectly. You know, that's the kind of thing we're up against, isn't it? You know? where you can overthrow the whole point of your welfare, my welfare, over some procedural matter. And not just that the matter is considered, oh, hmm, that's correct, that's incorrect, but the amount of passion that rises behind it, the amount of unconscious view tendency, the unconscious grasping at rightness, and the, and the intensity that can come up with that, and the, and the fighting that can go on with that. So the Buddha eventually said, okay, just leave him be. He went away, he left, it, left them, said, get on with it then. They started haranguing and hassling each other, and then eventually the lay people said, hey, where did the Buddha go? What happened to the Buddha? They said, oh, oh he left because we were, we were busy sorting out a business. They said, well, if you drove the Buddha away, we're not going to feed you anymore. Suddenly people forgot their views. <laughs> said, oh, well, um, it's <laughs> so they all came together, and the Buddha said, okay, all these people have been cursing each other and reviling each other. Just treat them all with respect and friendship, and just get them all to settle down in this place, we'll have a get-together, just sit down quietly, and, you know, give everybody equal, equal lodgings, equal dwellings, you know, just let it be like that. And then eventually just sort of sat there, and thought, uh, oh dear. Um. And then one went to the other and said, well, I don't know who was right or wrong, but in the course of sorting this out, I said some terrible things to you. And the other party said, well, we're not certain who was right or wrong, but we said some terrible things to you. So they just asked each other to forgive us. <laughs> then they could think, oh, that was the correct thing. It was just correct. It wasn't right anymore. It was just correct. So the whole unconscious passion you know, and it's beautiful to see how this unconscious sort of passion and venom arose. It wasn't actually 
quelled by somebody coming and saying, you're all wrong, you know, and throwing more unconscious venom and passion on top of it. But just by saying, well, why don't you just all come to this place and just sit down together and uh, go arms round together and have the meals and everybody's treated with respect. Just, so you just come back to mutuality and you start to look around and experience mutuality and how nice and pleasant and issue-free that is. And suddenly you think, well, where have I been? You know, These are my fellows. These are people I'm going to live with. These are my colleagues. These are spirit- what have I been doing? You know? And you're just dropping back to that. My welfare, your welfare. This was, this was bad. This was hurtful of me. This was hurt you, you know, and you, you find, just quell it like that. So that's, you know, there's a kind of an effort there to just, the effort is to come into presence, you know, to return to the ground of mutuality, to return to that place in one's own heart when one feels when there's no, um, no resistances, no shrinking away, no scapegoating, no blaming, but you're seeing, seeing things through the eyes of mutuality and then the scales of ignorance, the seals of ignorance drop from one's eyes. Mm-hmm. So this is actually, is in, you know, you're not actually adding any more ideology to it, any more judgments and analysis, just dropping back to this very basic right view. Mm. which is not something we, it's not, a, it's not an ideological right view, it's just, you know, it's just owning up to the fact that we are, we're here together, you know, we affect each other, we seek our welfare, and there are causes and conditions that is based upon loving kindness, harmony, Conscience of concern, mutual respect, mindfulness, skillful speech, skillful thought, eliminating, letting go of the unskillful. And then this is for one's welfare and for everyone's welfare. It's incredibly simple. And yet you see how the kind of effort that's needed to keep checking in with that. Yeah. It's not seemingly Herculean, but it's the effort, like of a of a your spider building its web, just careful. So you've got something there that will actually catch the passions of the mind. Mm. Uplifting, dwelling in what's good, what's wholesome, what sustains, putting aside what breaks up, what fragments, what reviles, what causes bitterness. Looking at the causes and conditions around which the unskillful and the skillful rise up. Mm-hmm. 
So this is the kind of, uh, you might say, the systems or the overarching structures that help to both put aside content that's of no purpose, that's pointless, that's just coming from an unconscious restlessness or agitation or craving, you know, that kind of, you know, basic renunciant quality, just to put aside what isn't really needed at this time, bringing up what is really needed, sustaining it, looking after it, keeping it well tuned in, keeping it well reflected upon. Do I have any quality of ill will towards this person, that person, these kinds of people, those kinds of people, checking it out? So you're doing that kind of housekeeping regularly. People you've, you know, in the past, people near, people far, people you're in action with people you haven't seen. Is any kind of ill will, niggardliness, uh, resistance, uh, scorn there? Hmm? Then realizing how this limits me, how this traps my heart, how this closes me down. And I don't want to do that. For no reason whatsoever. Not for any kind of God or right. This is something you you know, where it's very immediate, um, and you, you know, trust and our faith has to come back to this that which we can refer to immediately in our own minds, not to a tradition, not to a god, not to notions of right, but to really what is experienced in the here and now, for our welfare and the welfare of others. Anyone? Hey, well.